Hi everyone, my name is Danelle and I'm currently in my third year of studying a Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics. Um, I have the privilege of reading the Bible for us tonight. Um, the passage is Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 9. So if you'd like to um, open up your Bibles and you can follow along with me. So Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going to the, toward the Negeb. It is said of the Bible that it is like a pool that a child may wade in and an elephant can swim in. Someone has said that of John's Gospel, but it really is the truth of the whole Bible. By which they mean that at one level, the Bible is an amazingly simple book with a simple story that focuses on Jesus. And it's really simple, isn't it? That a child can understand that. But on the other hand... The Bible is also like a deep ocean that has profoundly deep truths that have occupied some of the greatest minds in history. And that's why, metaphorically, elephants can swim in it. Hands up if you've seen an elephant close up. Keep your hand up if you've actually touched the elephant close up. That's amazing. Talk to these people because... Elephants are big animals. And this week, we're going to be elephants. Think about it, dear brothers and sisters. This is the elephant week. We are going to swim like elephants. This week is all about plummeting the depths of the greatest truth of all the Bible, the cross of Christ. And if there is one book on the bookstall you're going to get, it's got to be this book called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. It is a book that you'll come back to over and over again. It is $30. It is worth $150 million. But $30, you can purchase it from our bookstore, which is just amazing. It's a book that you will come back to over and over and over again. And it's a book that, that's the kind of book that you buy from your bookstore, right? That, that what you get your money's worth for. And this is the book that, uh, amongst others that are there, but this is the classic. 
We have an outline on pages 12 and 13. And before we get stuck into it, let's pray elephantine kind of prayers. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather this night to plummet the depths of the greatest truth in your scriptures concerning your Son. And our Father, as we think your thoughts after you, please help us to think hard so that we can feel deeply who you are or what you've done and therefore have our lives transformed by your voice. And Father, we pray this for Jesus' most precious sake. Amen. On any given Friday, between 9am and 3pm, it's business as usual for most of us, isn't it? We get up to an alarm, maybe, and then we press the snooze button. We consume our usual breakfast with a coffee if possible. Then we wander into university for classes that we're already late for. And then we go to our part-time job, or we stress about the assignment due that day, or we just sleep in because we've now turned the alarm off. That's the usual start to a Friday for a number of us. But on another Friday, 2,000 years ago, between the hours of 9am and 3pm, one man was crucified with two others. This was unusual because normally dozens, even hundreds, even thousands were crucified at the same time. Because this time there were only three. And it's not the three who have any significance, but one of those three. And it's not that he died because millions have died. And it's not even that he died for a cause because millions have died for a cause. World War I and World War II will prove that amongst other wars. But what happened when Jesus, in these six hours that Friday, will reveal is the very being, the very character of God. It will reveal the very purpose of our existence. And it will take more than six hours for us to digest. In fact, it will take a whole lifetime of studying the scriptures. And we will only touch the tip of the iceberg this week as we study this topic, the cross of Christ. But it's our prayer that this tip really will transform your lives, as it did mine at my first MYC more than 20 years ago. So where do we begin a study on the cross of Christ? Well, this afternoon we began with the concept of covenant, didn't we? And I hope that was helpful to you, and I want to build on that this very evening. Because a covenant is the formalization of God's promises. Right? A formalization of God's promises. And you saw that in this afternoon's seminar. More accurately, there was a definition in your seminar in which a covenant is the formal initiation and regulation of a relationship that does not occur naturally. It stipulates who the parties are in the relationship and what kind of relationship they are entering into. Right? That's the definition that you had. And I think it's a very helpful definition. And one way to illustrate it is, well, like children. Right? If you are the 
biological child of your parents, you are the natural child, then your parents do not have to enter into a relationship with you in order to be your parents, do they? They have a natural relationship with you. Even your birth certificate is something that just simply expresses that natural relationship with you. But if you are an adopted child, that is an unnatural relationship. Your parents, if you are adopted, had to go through a process of some kind. They had to sign on a dotted line. They had to obey certain rules and regulations in order to enter into this unnatural relationship with you. But if you are adopted, do remember, you were chosen. That is really special. Yeah. We who are natural children, dare I say, may not have been chosen. But if you were adopted, you were chosen. And that is a kind of covenant. You see, it's entering into what is an irregular relationship. It's a formalization of promises that the parents say that I will be your parents and you will be my child. And when it comes to God's promises, they reveal the heart of his character that will ultimately glory in the cross of Christ. So back in Genesis 12, we see one of the most famous covenants that I know you looked at in your seminar, but I want to look at, you, look at it with you in a little bit more detail and trace through the covenants of the Bible. So please come back with me to Genesis chapter 12. There'll be a bit of Bible flipping each of these nights, so it's not like your usual sermon, which is on one text of Scripture. But we're going to look at several if you look at this deep truth. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, let me read it to you again. Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And it's when God commanded Abram to leave his country, right? So go to the land, he wasn't just asking him to change addresses. If you were to ask a Kenyan friend what their name is, it's likely that what they will say will not only identify what people call him, but it will also identify his father's name, his tribe, his ethnicity, his land, that is, where he belongs and where he is likely to be buried. It's all contained in a name. At a very deep level, the name describes who he is, his very identity. Now, it's the same with Abraham and the promises given to Abraham here. When God asks him to leave his country and kindred, his father's house and his land... He's asking Abraham to give up his very identity. Think about that for those of you who happen to have been born, grown up, and still live in the Shire. Can you imagine leaving the Shire? Why... You haven't, have you? And that's why you can't cross a river to go to the other... That's why you're at Wollongong University. Because you have to cross a river to go to the other universities, don't you? So to, to leave the Shire, that's to give up your identity, isn't it? It's to give up life. 
That's what it's like for Abraham and far more. Far more. He's asking Abram to give up his very identity. It's a big ask. It's to give up your extended family, leave your family home, leave your country, your food, the way you do things. That's why when I talked about that vision of doubling our number, offering them and themselves a missionary service, that, that's not a small ask, is it? When you hear what S and K, one of whom did grow up in the Shire, by the way, have to leave their identity to go somewhere else in order to share the good news of Jesus, that's a big, big deal. To leave your family home where you've grown up in, the place where all your memories are that have formed you to go elsewhere. That's what God is asking Abram to do. But look what God promises him. Verse 2 of Genesis 12. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God promises to bless Abram with each of those things, a new land, a new name, a new family, a new identity. In other words, he's saying, yes, you're going to give up an identity, but I'm going to give you a new identity. But like God, it's meant to be an outgoing identity. By outgoing, I don't mean someone who's extroverted. By outgoing, what I mean is that with his new identity, Abram and his new family are to be outwardly focused. They are to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, a conduit of blessing, a channel of blessing to all the families of the earth. So how did Abram respond? Well, he wasn't any more righteous than anyone else, really. If you know the story after uh, Genesis chapter 12 and something of Abram's life, you know that he lied. You know that he was selfish in a number of ways. He failed as a husband. He failed as a father. He failed as a leader. But by God's grace, there was one thing he did do right. He trusted God's promise. He just trusted him against all the odds. And God kept his promises to bless him. He did give Abram's family a new identity. He did give him a land and offspring and blessings. And we'll come to that in a moment. And God formalized these promises. As I mentioned before, a covenant is the formalization of a promise regarding an unnatural relationship. Well, he formalized these promises in the form of a covenant in Genesis chapter 15. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Again, I know you looked at it in your seminar a little bit, but I hope this will be helpful to you. In the context, Abram is appealing to God because he has no children, no proper heir in his old age. God says, I'm going to give you children. He still hasn't got children. And next in line is a guy named Eliezer, who is a distant relative. And so Abram says, well, have a look, Genesis chapter 15, what God says firstly. After these things, Genesis 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will, give you, uh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. Number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And God counted it to him as righteousness. See, God declared Abram righteous. To be declared righteous is to meet the standards of God. God declared Abram to have met his standards. Why? Was it because Abram was good? No. He lied. He failed as a father. He failed as a leader, remember? Is it because he had pity on Abraham as an old man at the time? No. Is it because Abram's ability to defeat powerful enemies, which he did in Genesis chapter 14? No. No, it was an unnatural relationship. Remember, Abram was sinful, a failure. God is holy and righteous and perfect. How can a holy God dwell naturally with sinners like Abram and declare him to have met his standards? Only by God's loving promise to do so against all the odds. Only by Abram believing his promises, trusting his promises against all the odds. It is because Abram trusted the loving promises of God that he was declared to have met God's standards. It's unbelievable, isn't it? The steadfast love of God. But please note here the emphasis is on God's promise. God is God. He will grant Abram offspring, as many as there are stars in the sky. And tonight at the bonfire, you will see more stars in the sky here than you will in Wollongong or the Shire or Sydney. Because you'll see far more stars. Try and count them. That's how many children Abram has today. But back then, he didn't have any. And he's pushing 80 here. It's unbelievable, isn't it? God says, you're going to have children. God formalizes that promise. And to formalize that promise, God asked Abram to bring a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon to him. And then God says, kill them. Break them in half, cut them in half, except for the pigeon. Lay these halves on opposite sides of each other. And then look what happens. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 15. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 15. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. 
And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, all that land that we know of as the Middle East and more. That is, God formalized his promises of land, of offspring, of blessings in this covenant, this unnatural relationship. He entered into this contract. See, ordinarily when two people make this covenant, they literally cut this covenant, hence the cutting of the animals. And what they usually do is that both parties agree on it and both parties walk in the middle of these cut animals, right? In order to say these words, that if one of us doesn't keep this promise in this covenant, may what has happened to these animals happen to us. Do you see how serious they take a covenant? That's a contract, right? That's, that's a promise. Saying, may, may we be killed if we don't keep these promises. But did you notice how many parties walked through this cut animals? It was only one smoking pot, which was basically God himself. God walked through these animals alone. What was Abram doing? He was fast asleep. That is, God took the initiative to formalize his unnatural relationship with Abram through these promises and guaranteed the covenant with his own life. And all Abram had to do was trust his promises. And God declared Abram righteous. As having met God's standards. And all this happens before Genesis 17 when God repeats his promises. So come to Genesis chapter 17 now in verse 1. Genesis 17 in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old. He's... Pretty good, isn't he? Probably didn't eat as much ice cream as you did tonight. Kept going, 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Do note now that his name now means father of many, right? So that's what his name literally means. That's, that, that his name expresses the blessings that God has promised him. Then verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. 
Do you see those aspects again? Land, offspring, blessings. When I was a teenager, I learned those promises by the first letter of each one. So L for land, O for offspring, B for blessings. That spells lob. Isn't that a cool way to remember things if you've never heard that before? Just think Federer and Djokovic. <laughs> I wish Federer won too, like most of the world. But nevertheless, just think of their lobbing, right? So that's the promises of God, land, offspring, blessing. It's all there, isn't it? And it's all there. And Abram was already declared righteous and God assures him of his promises. But this time the covenant is extended to his offspring, not just to Abram, but to his offspring. And there are more details, even changing his name, as I said before. And this time, Abram is to express his trust in a particular way. In verse 9, it keeps on going, Genesis 17, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision was now how he was to express his trust. Cutting the foreskin off the penis. Oh, I said that word. <laughs> you wouldn't believe that that's the first talk. It's, I've already said something kind of rude. You know, but it's actually here, isn't it? That, that's what circumcision is. Why circumcision? Why is that an expression of his trust? According to Romans 4 verse 11, it was, uh, circumcision was a sign. Romans 4 verse 11, you can jot that reference down. It was a sign and seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Right. So we know that Abraham trusts God's promise, and so he's declared righteous, and circumcision expresses that trust. But why circumcision? Like, why there? Why not a painted fingernail? Or a tattoo on your head? Faithful one. Or, you know, a pet dog or something or other. You know, why circumcision? Now, some of you have heard me answer this question and say you're not allowed to say anything. But the rest of you... Talk with one another, just with the person next to you. And if you did hear me and you've forgotten, you're allowed to talk too. But just spend a moment, a minute. I'm going to give you a literal minute. I'm counting down now. Why circumcision? Go. Okay, I said a minute. That was a literal minute. 
right? So I'm keeping my promises like God from as much as I can. I'm waiting for lightning to kill me at this point in time. Anybody over this side, share with me, what did you come up with? Those of you who've never heard me give an answer to this question, by the way. Anybody want to have a guess? Why circumcision? My arms are getting tired. Yeah. <laughs> I'm adding that to my notes. <laughs> a secret gang sign. I like that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go to this side now. Anybody over here? Why circumcision? Anybody over here? Yeah, Ned. A sign. Yeah, it is a sign of trust. But why there? Because <laughs> it's very trustful. It's a very trusting place. No, no. It's actually quite the opposite, actually. Uh, well, here's, here's my best guess, okay? Uh, we skipped a chapter. I don't know whether you noticed that. We went from Genesis 15 to Genesis 17. But in chapter 16, something happens, right? What happens there? Abram has his wife, Sarah. She's getting on. She's in her 70s. He's in his 80s. In case you're wondering, in your 80s, you're usually not a fertility factory, Okay? <laughs> It just doesn't happen at that stage of life, ordinarily. Nor do you actually have much libido at that stage of life. I'm told. I'm told, right? Okay. Now, he's married to Sarah. Sarah says, we're getting on. So no child coming. No child coming. You promised, but no child. But he says, it's going to come from your body. So why don't you have a child with my, my servant, Hagar, right? So he has a child with Hagar. Remember? And the child comes through, and you can read the rest of chapter 16 for yourself there. And that's where uh, we learn something of what goes on in terms of their reliance. See, where did they rely on in the end to produce children? You don't have to say it. A seemingly trustworthy place. Does that make sense? That is to say that in chapter 16... He followed the advice of his wife and slept with his servant Hagar to conceive a child, an heir, instead of trusting that the heir would come through his wife Sarai. I mean, who could blame them? But Abram and Sarai took matters into their own hands. In other words, they sought another child, an heir, by relying on their own strength rather than relying on God. So what does God do? But cut, as it were, cut back, as it were, the very organ that Abram relied on as a sign that he was to rely on God and not on his own strength. And so circumcision was to become an everlasting covenant sign of their trust in God alone to keep his promises to Abram, not to rely on their own strength. Does that make sense? I mean, you saw this covenant repeated with Abram's offspring in the book of Exodus as well. But anyway, that's my best guess in thinking through why circumcision. The heart of the idea is that you are to trust in God and not in anyone or anything else, and most of all, not in yourself and in your abilities, and in what you do. 
Now, in your seminar this afternoon, you looked a lot in the book of Exodus. And here, God makes his promises to Israel to enter into an unnatural relationship with them as well as a nation, right? As to their offspring. And God's people are gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai after God had rescued them in a blaze of signs and wonders. And look what he tells Moses to say. Again, I know a passage you looked at, but hopefully this will just build on everything that you did in your uh, seminar. So turn to Exodus 19 with me now in your Bibles. Exodus, that's the next book, the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 19, chapter 19 and verse 4, verse 4. Chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 4. God says to Moses, and indeed to the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, do put that phrase in the back of your head. We're going to come to it at the very end. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Again, what is on view here? God says to the people of Israel that they will be his treasured possession above all things. They will be his priestly kingdom They will be priests to the nations, blessing the nations. And they will be a holy nation. Holy means set apart, set apart for God. They are to be his peculiar people. They are to be his bride, as it were, where he is their husband. They are to be his people. They are set apart for him and he for them. It's like your toothbrush. That's set apart for you, isn't it? If someone else uses your toothbrush, some of you need a new toothbrush. You really do. That new toothbrush will be set apart for you. Especially set apart for you. You don't share that stuff, do you? God doesn't share his people with other people. Other gods. They are his peculiar people. As a a husband to a a wife, God promises Israel that he will be their God. They will be his people. And with a marriage, as it were, comes obligations, including the laws that the Ten Commandments were foundational to. And what you saw this afternoon in Exodus 24 was the marriage ceremony, where God cut a covenant with Israel in an elaborate ceremony that required the shedding of blood. Remember, Moses built an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai, 12 pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he asked the young men to offer sacrifices on the altar. And then he took half the blood and threw it on the altar. After that, he read the book of the covenant to them, namely what God had said in the law. Then the people said they would obey everything. And then Moses threw the other half of the blood on the people. Remember that? Blood on the altar, blood on the people. It's like the promises made between the bride and the groom on a wedding day. Except instead of wedding rings as a sign and seal of their promises, they get blood thrown all over them. Now that's a memorable wedding day, isn't it? Apart from the smell and the cleaning up needed afterwards, the blood reminds them of the lengths that God will go to to remain faithful to his promises. Remember the cutting of those animals? But what about Israel? 
in Exodus 32, turn really to chapter 32. I'm hoping to make this easy tonight because you just keep on turning to the right somewhere. Right? In Exodus 32, though, the people of Israel get a bit antsy. And what do they do? Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. When the people saw, verse 30, chapter 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, he has, become, what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You see what's going on? Just after the wedding, just after they had exchanged rings in the form of blood, as it were, they commit adultery. They create another god out of gold and jewelry and offer sacrifices to it, claiming that this is the one who brought them out of Egypt. It's not as if they're creating another god, so to speak, because they, they are saying, this is Yahweh. This is the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Not saying it's a completely different god in a different context. They're saying, no, now let's create something. They want to see this god. It's not enough just to hear his voice. We've got to see it. So much of idolatry has got to do with what you see primarily. And they wanted to see this God. Here is your God. Here are your gods. It's the equivalent of getting married, going on your honeymoon. One of you goes to the shops and you come back and find your spouse, your new spouse with another lover. It's unbelievable. That's what's taking place here on their honeymoon. So how does God respond Come to chapter 32, verse 9. Chapter 32, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. See what he's saying? God is rightly angry with them. He has pure, righteous, holy wrath against them. And he wants to wipe them off the face of the planet and begin a whole new race through Moses. Did you see that? That I may make a great nation of you, Moses. But look how Moses responds in verse 11 of chapter 32. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn, against, burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? 
to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring that they shall inherit it forever. You see that? That is, Moses appeals to God's original covenant promises to Abraham of land, of offspring, of blessings. Remember your promises, God. Presumably he has Genesis 15 in mind again when God walked through those animals that were torn in two. And God relents. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises, no matter what the cost. But does that mean that Israel's going to get off scot-free? Now go to verse 30 of chapter 32. Verse 30. The next day, verse 30, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps, here's the word, I can make atonement for your sin. I can make atonement for your sin. What does atonement mean in the context? It means having God's anger diverted from them somehow, doesn't it? That's all it can mean in the context. Because his anger is burning hard against them to wipe them off the face of the planet. He's saying, perhaps we can make atonement. I'm going to go to you because you have sinned a great sin. Something's got to be done about God's anger against you. And so how does Moses propose to make atonement? How does Moses propose to deal with God's rightful anger against them? Verse 31 of chapter 32. So Moses returned, verse 31, to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Blot me out. See, Moses doesn't go and offer sacrifices of bulls and goats. He senses that something far more is needed to deal with God's anger. So he offers himself. Moses offers himself as an atonement. He offers himself as the one that God can pour out his anger on instead of the people. He offers himself to be a substitute by being wiped out of the book of life for eternity. Can you see how serious Moses understood Israel's sin to be? I wonder how serious you consider your sin to be, let alone the sins of others. Moses is willing not only to lose his life, but to lose his soul into eternity for the sake of his fellow Israelites.
But listen to how God responds in verse 33. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Oh, he will visit their sin. You see, God will visit us for our sins. He's not just going to tuck it under the carpet. He will do what is right. But it won't be through Moses. And what we see here so far is Moses acting in the role as a mediator. But he still feels that he doesn't know God well enough, even though he's acting as a mediator. So he wants to find out more about God. And as you follow the account in chapter 33 now of Exodus, go to verse 18 of chapter 33, verse 18 of chapter 33, Moses said, Please show me your glory, God. Please show it to me. Now, just for a moment, ponder what is someone's glory? What is someone's glory? Your glory is what makes you shine, isn't it? Your glory is your splendor, your magnificence, your greatness, your wonder, your radiance, your dignity, your honor. That's your glory. And people speak about the glory of places, don't they? What is the glory of Wollongong? Shout out. Kiraville. Kiraville, of course it is. <laughs> Apart from Kiraville, what is the glory of Wollongong? The council? Oh, my goodness me. Sorry? The big blue. Yeah, yeah, the big blue. That, that kind of uh, line uh, across the coastline there. The, the, the lighthouse, the, 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 the beaches, of course, Billmore Basin. You know, you can actually see, uh, if you go over Wollongong on an aeroplane, you can actually see it quite stands out all the time. You can see the lighthouse and everything. And Jeanette, my wife, always sees it. I never see it because... I'm not next to the window, but I, I never see it. <laughs> but she always sees it, right, all, all the time, because it's so distinctive, along with other places like Kurrawong. You can always see that if you know where that is as well. Right? It's an amazing place. Oh, someone actually thinks it's a good place as well too, yeah. So the, the, the glory is the coastline. The, it, it's, it's just magnificent, isn't it? And when you, when you talk about the glory of something, you know it's something distinctive that stands out that's impressive. What is the glory of God? Why does it stand out about God? Is it his magnificent power? No, it does stand out. But look at verse 19 now of chapter 33. Verse 19. Right. Moses says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. The Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What is God's glory? Why, it's his character of goodness and mercy. 
It's his character that is his glory. And we learn more about his character in chapter 34. Come to chapter 34 and verse 6. Chapter 34 and verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, verse 6 of chapter 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see what he's saying? When we come to the character of God, we learn all these magnificent things about God. He is slow to anger. He's full of steadfast love to thousands and thousands. But he's going to deal with sin at the same time. So just to take stock for a moment, we've, we've come a long way, haven't we? Just by way of summary again, God made promises to Abram to formalize a covenant, an unnatural relationship where the holy God can dwell with sinners somehow by trusting in the promises of God. And God entered into this covenant relationship, not only with Abram, but Abram's offspring through the shedding of blood to take them into the promised land and bless them. But Israel commits adultery and God has every right to blot them out of his book. Moses intervenes, offering to make atonement by substituting himself in their place. And God declines. And at Moses' request, he reveals his very character, his glory in the relationship. And that character is that God's mercy is displayed with his judgment. With judgment. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but he will be angry, but he's slow to anger. Not quick to anger like humans. Not self-righteous in his anger like me and maybe like you. Slow to be righteously angry. Abounding, overflowing in steadfast love, tender-hearted love and faithfulness. Keeping his promises against all the odds. And how does he show his steadfast love? By forgiving the sins of thousands and thousands without letting the guilty go unpunished. And even when he does punish, it is only to the third and fourth generation, in contrast to the steadfast love he shows to a thousand generations. And because of his steadfast love, God's mercy is displayed with his judgment. Somehow in his stubborn love for his people, he will love them without ever compromising his justice. How can he possibly do that? How can God simultaneously express his just judgment and his steadfast love in forgiving the sins of his people? Well, we'll find out in a moment. But as we trace through the history of Israel from this point, Israel just spiraled from bad to worse. Centuries go by. The 12 tribes of Israel split into two nations, effectively. The 10 northern tribes which become known as Israel or Ephraim, and the two southern tribes that become Judah. They were both exiled because of their sins. The ten northern tribes were taken by Assyria in 721 BC, scattered all over the ancient Near East. The two southern tribes belonging to King David were exiled into Babylon in 597 BC. And this period of history was the darkest period of history 
of Israel that actually made the Holocaust look like a Sunday school picnic. And it's during this time of the exile that all hope looks lost. And everybody's wondering, what about the promises of God to Abraham? What about your promises, God? Aren't you going to keep your promises? You said we're going to have a land. You said we're going to have offspring and blessings. Look at us now. We're not even in our land. And that's when God comes with an amazing promise in Jeremiah. So turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah. If you don't know where that is, just ask some people around about you. But it's to the right. Jeremiah 31. Incidentally, if you don't know where these books of the Bible are, please don't ever feel inferior in any sense. No one is better than you just because they know where the books of the Bible are and you don't. Just ask. Your status before God doesn't rely on where you know the Bible books are. Jeremiah 31. Because here we come to an amazing, an amazing promise. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. They're good numbers to remember, aren't they? 31, 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Because we come to another promise of God. See, the covenant is all about the formalization of God's promise of an unnatural relationship between a holy God and an unholy people. And we read in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. See, now here he's saying explicitly, he was their husband, right? Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. You see, God is making a new covenant. But in what sense is this covenant new? It's not new in its intent. Right? The intention of a covenant is to formalize God's unnatural relationship with a sinful people through promises to his people. Right? That's the intent. And the new covenant shares this intent with the old covenant. Same intent. What is new in the new covenant is the expression of the intent. The old covenant was expressed through tribes and representatives, right? They had 12 tribes, they had representative elders, they had prophets, they had priests, they had kings, and it was only through the prophets and the priests and the kings that they could know the Lord, right? Only through those mediate mediators as it were, prophets, priests and kings, but especially priests as mediators, but they were all kind of conduits through whom you knew the Lord because they were the ones who taught the people. But under the new covenant, everyone can know the Lord without these particular representatives. For what is especially new about the new covenant is its power to deal with human sinfulness. For now what God will do is, note, write his law in their hearts. Under the new covenant, we don't need to have prophets 
and priests and kings telling us what the law says. Because God himself will write his law in our hearts. And in so doing, he'll enable us to obey his laws. Now, that's pretty clever if you think about it. See, what does our government do? Our government has laws. It tries to pass laws. And, he tr- and, the, lo- and the government tries to get us to obey his laws. Problem is that we don't obey his laws, do we? We often, or the government laws, what we do is often disobey them. So what does the government do to make us obey laws? Well, they change the laws, don't they? So what, they, they couldn't stop us gambling, so they legalised gambling. That's a pretty clever way to get us to obey the law, isn't it? <laughs> they couldn't stop prostitution, so they legalised prostitution. They couldn't stop pornography, so they legalised pornography. Then everybody can obey the law now. But what does God do? He keeps his law exactly in place, but he changes our hearts so that we want to obey his law. Now, that's clever, isn't it? Why, that's God-like. That's the new covenant. And what else will he do? At the end, we read... In verse 34, at the end of verse 34, for I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. He will forgive their iniquities. Again, how can he possibly do that? How can a holy God naturally dwell with a sinful people? How can God simultaneously express his just judgment and his steadfast love by forgiving the sins of his people? Well, the only way that God's righteousness could be satisfied was to direct his judgment upon his appointed substitute so that his steadfast love could be directed towards us in forgiveness. Moses was half right. He was right in knowing that the only way to appease God's wrath required a substitute bearing the penalty. But as incredibly noble as he was, he was not a worthy substitute. They needed a worthy substitute. That's why we need a new covenant. If the old covenant was formalized at Mount Sinai, when was the new covenant formalized? That's a real question. You did it in your seminar, didn't you? So someone shout out the answer. When was the new covenant formalized? At the cross. And it was symbolized in the very first passage I think you looked at. In Luke chapter 22. Remember Luke 22? Tell me Luke 22. There's one of the last references. We're just turning to the right. Luke 22 verse 18. Luke 22 verse 18. Jesus. Jesus is here. And he's speaking at the last supper. In Luke 22 verse 22. Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That's the cross, isn't it? But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another to which of them it would be who was going to do this. But come back to verse 18. He's talking about his cross, right? But verse 18 is what we looked at. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's the new covenant. The wine that symbolizes his blood. The new covenant was inaugurated, formalized, when Jesus took upon himself the judgment of his father as the worthy substitute. Here symbolized in the institution of the Last Supper that we remember by way of repeating it as the Lord's Supper from time to time as we gather. And just as blood was shed to establish the old covenant, so too the blood of Jesus was shed to establish the new covenant. The cross of Christ is at the center of this new framework of relationship. It transformed everything. There could be no new covenant without Jesus' shed blood. No forgiveness. No internalizing of the law. No way of knowing God our Father. No relationship. None unless Jesus dies. So please know that if you have real sin to confess, if you've done something that you know deserves the wrath of God, if you are guilty of thoughts or deeds that you know will grieve God, sexual immorality of any description, pride, who doesn't have pride? Theft, copyright, jealousy, envy, just sheer self-centeredness. God can forgive you because of Jesus' blood. Because of the shed blood of Jesus. We can be forgiven and trust his promises to be forgiven and therefore be declared to have met his standards like Abram. And please note the cross of Christ is not just an individualistic thing. Jesus did not die as a private man. He died as a public man. He died to win for himself a whole new people of his very own eager to do what is good. He died for us as a people. And so as we gather here, we gather as a cross-centered new covenant people together, having had our sins nailed at the cross, now living with transparent love for one another in the heavenly places because of the cross. And so we turn to our very last reference in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I asked you to hold a particular thought Way before in Exodus 19, but here it comes to life again in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And here the people of God are gathered with all these angelic beings around God and they are singing to Jesus, as it were, a new song. And we read in verse 9, in the heavenly places as we gather, it says in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 5, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people, no, people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them what? A kingdom and 
priests, priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's why this, this news of Jesus is for every tribe and language and people and nation. He's died for the nations. He died as a public man, not a private man. And now if we trust in his promises, we're all priests, you see. We don't need other mediators. We don't have priests today in the sense of the Old Testament. It's very unfortunate that we have the word priest if they are leaders in our churches, if they mean it in the Old Testament sense. No, we're all priests if we're believers. In what sense are we all priests? We're all, we're all people who only have one mediator, namely our Lord Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection. We're now all priests in that we all have bold access to God. We can all know God without having to go through other mediators outside of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are people who can pray for one another like priests did in the Old Testament. We can treat each other like royalty. And what we know by trusting God's promises will give way to sight. When on that last day, when Moses said, show me your glory, we will be able to see God in all his glory on that last day because of that six hours, one Friday, 2,000 years ago. And we will see a foreshadow of that this week, I pray. As you treat each other like royalty. Losing your interest in the interests of others. Treating them as if you were their servant. Because that's what servants do with their masters, don't they? They, they, love, they treat them as if they've got more status than you. That's what royalty is. And can I encourage you to do that? Can I encourage you especially to do that amongst friends who perhaps are not locals? Our friends from other tribes and languages and nations who do not share our language and find it a little harder perhaps to integrate. Please say hello. There's so much to learn from them. But so much to learn from each other, isn't it? Because we all can only be forgiven through Jesus. And I hope you look forward to finding more about the cross of Christ this week. Let's pray. We thank you, dear Father, that in the formalizing of your promises in the covenants that we've only brushed upon this night and this day, that you have given us a glimpse into your heart of your steadfast love, of your mercy, of your justice. And thank you for keeping your promises in Christ and his cross. And we pray, dear Father, that you help us, therefore, to live as fellow priests, living for your glory, granted the status of righteousness simply by trusting your promises that were fulfilled in the cross of your Son. And as we work through this week, please transform us into his likeness and love as he loved for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Thanks, Richard. Uh, now it's reflection time. It's a time we spend on ref to reflect on what we've, we've just heard from Richard's talk and think about how it affects us and challenges us in the way we live and act as we are followers of Jesus Christ. So our reflection question for tonight is, um, if we really understand uh, what Jesus did for us on the cross of Christ, so how should we uh, change the way we live uh, as a student in the campus and uh, um, probably as a worker in your workplace, uh, like how you treat each other and uh, um, take the opportunity to share with others about the, this precious gift Jesus um, offered to us. Um, so we will have um, three minutes for reflection, and uh, after this, Ethan is going to lead us in prayer. Alrighty, you guys, we're going to pray now. My name's Ethan. Uh, I'm a fourth-year psychology student. Uh, and praying is just talking to God, so I'd like to invite you to pray with me now. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, there is no one holy like you. There is none besides you. There is no rock like you, O God. You are merciful and gracious. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You keep steadfast love for thousands. You forgive iniquity, transgression and sin, and you will by no means clear the guilty of their sin. What a privilege it is that we can call you our God and our Father. We confess 
that we are not worthy to sit at your table and we confess that we are sinful people and that we so often do not acknowledge you. Father, please forgive us for our sin and rebellion. We praise you for what we have learnt tonight. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your faithfulness. Um, we acknowledge that we cannot understand your ways without your help. So, Father, we ask, would you continue to draw near to us over the next four days, and please, would you continue to fill us with your spirit? Send us more of your grace that we might find mercy and peace. And would you please change our hearts so that we may be obedient to you? Help us forget the anxieties of the world and cling to your word, not only during NYC, but also for the rest of our lives. Father, please be growing us all together more into the image of your Son and help us remember the example that you have set for us in your Son, whom did not, who did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but rather humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. Help us strive together for the unity of the faith, seeking to serve each other and you for the rest of our lives. Father, our hearts go out to our brothers and sisters who cannot safely come before your throne in prayer. For those who are persecuted, tortured, and for those who are dying for their faith, Father, we ask that you would draw near to them. Strengthen them, sustain them in their faith for the glory of your Son. We commit all these requests to you now for his name's sake. The wonderful Counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, of whose kingdom and reign we'll see no end. Amen.